Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to the Why Not Your podcast. Today we are discussing parenthood how to reach the decision on whether or not to have children and also the obstacles that we may face upon choosing to become parents, especially during one of the biggest global pandemics in modern history, COVID-19. My guests today delve into these issues and they are Linda Kelly, who is the current media spokesperson for the Better Maternity Care campaign, which is focused on the experience of women attending maternity services during COVID-19. We also have Margaret O'Connor, who has been working as a counsellor and psychotherapist for over a decade. She strongly believes that people can make decisions and address issues in their lives once they have time, space and support to do so. One of Margaret's main aims in her professional career is to help those who are unsure about parenthood, for whatever reason, to make the right decision for them by providing information and an independent, non-judgmental space. So for anyone out there that is in a couple or if you're single and you have reached a point in your life where you're thinking about having kids, Let's just start this conversation and see what the best options for you are and what trials and tribulations that you may face as well. It's lovely to have you here today, Margaret, and Linda is going to join us a little bit later on. Um, I suppose the main thing of what we'll kind of broach on today is to talk about women's place in society over the last number of years with the rise of women's independence and intersectional feminism. Some some choose to have children, some choose not to have children, and some are really ostracized if they do. And sometimes if a woman reaches a certain age, they're constantly reminded that their biological clock is ticking and that it's their place to procreate. I have sisters myself and a lot of friends that have had children and families. And even though they know me very well, they you know, kind of remind me anytime I'm back in Ireland. How do you feel that in today's society, you know, what, where does a woman's choice lie and where does the societal pressure of shaping a woman's choice come into the equation? Mm, you know, it's a huge question because there's so many things, I think, intersecting and influencing this. And on the one hand, it seems quite straightforward. It's like the, the choice to uh, maybe control our fertility or or choose not to have children. Um, so it, it seems that it should be relatively straightforward on, on that side. Then in reality, uh, anyone who tries to do that uh, will, will know that it is, it is much more complicated than that. So there's a lot of factors. And, you know, practically, there's just a lot of factors. I said there's, I, I like to think of it, I suppose, more of a continuum. There are some people who are really, really sure that they want to be parents. Mm. There are people who are really, really sure they do not want to be parents. And there's a huge area in between of people who are unsure or who are affected by life circumstances. Um, you know, obviously, we're in the middle of the pandemic at the moment, and that has had a huge impact. And it could, there can be a whole range of, of factors that can impact. So, you know, even, unfortunately, even the language we have is, is not particularly useful. And I, I think it makes it seem very clear cut. And you're either in this camp or that camp. Um, mm totally happy about it wherever you are and there's no in between and it's just not the case there's much much more gray area and nuance um in, in this i think so it's just to, to acknowledge that 
it is hard as I find it hard sometimes to speak in generalizations because it's such an individual situation and everybody's uh, experience of it will be very different but I suppose again we have this idea that you know there are so many factors come together at different times for different people in their own particular circumstances. So like that, for some people, there's just no process. You know, they, they actually don't think about it. They're absolutely mm. sure they either do want or don't want kids. And, and that's not even really a decision to them. They just kind of know that. And, and some people might know that right, quite early on. Some people come to that later on. And that just kind of is what it is. And, and they continue on from there. For other people, that's much more uncertain. They might change their minds, you know, over and back. It might depend on life circumstances again um, to move between those positions. And then for some people, they're forced to make that decision. Yeah. Again, it might be for life, you know, life events. It might be through illness or a health treatment or again, you know, like what like what we're looking at at the moment uh, with all the different um, circumstances affecting people. So they're all really, really different um, circumstances. Then the people that I might meet are the people who are saying, I, I don't think I want them. I don't think I want children, but like, should I? Yeah. And of course, age is probably a, a big factor as well, because as I just said there, you know, anytime I go back to Ireland, I meet with my sisters, I meet with my mom. And even when my, my grandmother was alive, you know, she was like, now Linda, the clock is ticking, you know, it's it's time to think about when you're going to have kids. And, you know, it's that that pressure. There, I, I feel that there is a societal pressure on women as well. But from my perspective, I'm kind of like, well, I career is very important to me. It's ambition is very important. It's always been what's taken the precipice over everything else and having a family. It's saying my my own personal views. I just don't think that I could fit that in and allocate that into everything else that I'm doing. And I know that other people are completely different than they can and they're great multitaskers and they can, you know, facilitate all that. So what's the average kind of when a person kind of comes and, and, and chats to you and, and kind of says, right, you know, what are the obstacles that many face or what is the kind of, you know, yeah. the roadmap, if you will? into either planning a family or deciding to you know let's not do this and I'm totally aware as well of people in relationships where they get to a certain point especially heteronormative relationships where a man and a woman are together for a certain period of time and it's just expected of them to have children mm -hmm. but yet sometimes they might not want to or sometimes one of the partners might not want to and then that will result in either a, a breakup in the relationship and then you have to look at the state of the relationship and at what stage the relationship is at so yeah. if obviously there, there's never really an easy way to kind of go right this is from this from a to b like but what would be the kind of um yeah. i suppose this the suggested roadmap to to navigating that as um as a couple and obviously there's people that have children that are single as well so what would be kind of a advice there that you'd have oh i like really basically talk about it you know yeah. i I, and I know that, like I don't mean that flippantly, but like I have, I, I you know, I, I would have couples who who come to to me who have genuinely never talked about it, and you know, yeah. they might be married, they might be together a long time, mm. actually had the conversation, and yeah. I think this goes back to how assumed it is. The mm. assumption is that everybody will and wants to have children at some mm. point in their life. So if mm. if if that's the norm, that's what we see in ads. That's what we that policy is worked towards and the only reason you won't do that is because you can't and that's excused to a point but if you choose not to um that's very 
strange <laughs> you know basically yeah. uh, that doesn't make sense uh, on on a social side so um you know that assumption that can that can influence on an individual level you know I, I often have clients as well who assumed they would have children later on mm. and in their 20s oh yeah later on now in my 30s and they get to their 30s and oh yeah later on now when I'm in my late 30s and mm. you know then you're kind of, then it becomes more of that forced um decision of well like I have to make my mind up now kind of one way or the other um so the and but they haven't actually stopped question do I want to have children mm. that assumption is so strong and kind of all the all the signposts you're looking at are telling you that's the direction you're going to go in really really hard then to kind of just even pause for a minute and kind of think well do I you know is this what I want is this what we want and trying to figure out what might life look like if we don't do that or if I don't do that. Yeah, that takes a lot of self-awareness. It takes, um, you know, some, some courage and, and um, being able to maybe just just think about it. Um, so for some people, you know, they're genuinely not even aware that that's a choice, you know, on, on a they'll know it on an intellectual level. But, you know, applying it to themselves. Um, that can be quite challenging. So, yeah, talking about it, you know, giving yourself a chance, I suppose, as early as you can, you know, um, taking time to to reflect and look at it and, you know, look at your social circle, look at your your own family background. All of these factors come into play, mm. um, your own experience of family um um your own your own personal development you know do you feel ready to be mm. a parent do you see yourself you know you often hear people saying you know am, am I am I the adult here do we feel yeah. grown up enough to to take on that role are yeah. there you know physical and mental health you know are, are mentioned a lot people really put so much thought and effort they want to be the best parent they can be yeah. want to go down that road and if they think something might prevent them from doing that mm. you know, they take it very seriously and, and they're the kinds of, of conversations we'd be having practically you know obviously uh, financial stability accommodation you know these are huge factors for people if they're in insecure accommodation precarious employment um it's very hard to plan and to find a good time um that you can plan ahead and, and, and you know be in a, a more certain state yeah to family and friends having a support network um, it's very important to people as well. So again, that may or may not be possible depending on where you are. Mm. Um, and I suppose, you know, it's interesting. I did some research and it was back, well, back in 2017. It's not that long ago. Mm. But, um, the, you know, when I spoke to, to Irish women to see what they considered and, and environmental reasons didn't come up at all. Right. And now it was just really interesting, like in the last year or two, you know, for some people, environmental reasons are are key or they're certainly part of the thinking um, around it as well, both in terms of kind of the impact that, you know, increasing the population will have and also the type of, of world they they're might be bringing a child into. So it's changing, you know, I think it's changing quite rapidly and, and people really are giving this you know really serious thought but there's as I said there's all those things interacting for each individual yeah um, and how that how that lands with them as well then and I suppose something I found in my research was that if people wanted to be a parent enough if the motivation was strong enough then they'd put effort into putting those things in place you know planning maybe we'll move to be near a family or I'll you know mm working arrangements if I can or whatever it is but if if that motivation either wasn't there or wasn't strong enough 
then the the motivation to do those things you know kind of wasn't there as, as much either so the actual desire and want to be a parent you know is mm. really important and, and that's not always a given as as we might expect it to be yeah I mean I think with regards to people that I know that I've grew up with and friends and family and I, I've noticed just this sharp focus that it brings to people's lives when they do have children and a lot of the time I've, I've heard this so many times with friends you know especially if they had you know difficult backgrounds that they want to create a better home and a better safety uh, network and environment for their children that they may not have had but then I won't see them going to therapy or I won't see them trying to heal their inner child mm-hmm. and you know I can sense the nervousness that they might have but then there is also a reluctance um to kind of invest in yourself and then also have that duality of investing in some in someone that you're about to create as well so what for couples that say have chosen to you know yeah we're going to we're going to go down this route Mm -hmm. is it kind of brought up or should it be a factor that yeah you need to look within um you know you can be optimistic but with reservations and with them reservations it's you know comes with loads of different feelings and and you know ideas in your head about parenting like is there what would be the best resources out there or do you feel that you know seeking counsel and properly dismantling different things that you have in your mind especially if you know if you've come from a, a place of either a fragile childhood or even a, a really lovely childhood you just want to ensure that you carry that on and you, you fulfill that in your own parent role yeah, Joe, you know, I think it's a really good point. Uh, I think this this is the point. I think parenthood is so symbolically valued. It's put up there as this, you know, wonderful thing to do. And I'm not saying it's not. But mm. then the level of practical support, which I'm sure Linda will tell us a little bit more about, yeah. is, is not generally not really there or not there enough. So this assumption that you will just become a parent and that you don't really have to do anything. Mm prepare yourself for that is so unhelpful because you know the difference between the expectation of it and the reality of it can be so different and regardless you know as you said regardless of your background I think it is just a huge life uh, transition Um, you know there can be it can be you know to have a little mini version of yourself can be very triggering I wouldn't put that level of antichrist onto the world So, you know, uh, and obviously I'm, I'm a therapist, so I'm biased. And I think, yes, everyone should go for counseling. But I do agree it would be very, very helpful if people were able, you know, to have more of a transition to, you know, in an ideal world, be prepared and have the time and resources to do that, both yeah. individually and as a couple, um, because it's all about communication. It's all about, you know, knowing yourself, knowing your patterns and knowing, OK, how is that going to be when I'm sleep deprived and very busy mm. and, you know all the other things that come with it so absolutely you know I think it would be wonderful for people to have that support and, and give that support to themselves but it was ironically it's like the lack of time and then the focus you know that that focus shifts you know that and, and obviously this makes sense that the, the focus should be on the child and all the child's needs but the parents often get left out of, of that equation entirely and that's not helpful at all yeah. um, but again, this is kind of the model that we're given, really. Um, yeah, that is really helpful to everyone. Yeah, I think assistance, like just keywords that you said there, like kind of assistance, support, and you know, granted, if you've reached that stage where you're like, you know what, 
children isn't for me and you're going down another route uh, but say you're you know you you decide to have children you're ready to start a family you know you looked at that study in 2017 and conducted some research yourself and then you know fast forward to 2021 where we're in covid we're in the biggest global pandemic you know where in terms of the assistance and the the key factors in you you reach the stage with a partner or a spouse or on your own and you decide to go down that path and you're like you know what ready to start a family or you're ready to have another child and then smack bam the world just does what it does and spins on its axle and we're suddenly in this global pandemic there's a lot of things that have changed um and in terms of support and assistance who better to ask than linda kelly from the better maternity care campaign over to you linda yeah, so I was pregnant when COVID hit with my second child. Um, and it's interesting listening to Margaret speak there about all of the choices that, you know, are facing people around whether or not to start a family. And I have polycystic ovary syndrome and I've, I've known I've had that since I was 20. Mm-hmm. And uh, before we got married, I said to my husband, look, I just really want to go and see what the story is and, and what the position is, because like I rarely get periods like ever rarely so most of my friends are like you lucky duck and (laughs) I like yeah um but obviously you kind of you know when you know the basics of reproduction you know that that potentially is an issue and we went and we we kind of went to a pretty prominent fertility doctor he was like you're never going to get pregnant naturally like it's really unlikely you know obviously he didn't say never but he was like you know it's really really unlikely or whatever Mm -hmm. and uh, then I got pregnant with my first girl that was a surprise and then after what happened was um, I decided to stop using a hormonal contraception because I didn't feel it was good and then suddenly four months later I was pregnant again with my second baby Um, and sometimes choice is taken out of your hands in a way you know because your body body reacts to things and so it was a bit of a surprise to find ourselves pregnant again so quickly um, and then so we kind of had adjusted to that and then I had to get my appendix out while I was pregnant oh wow um, before COVID hit and that comes with a whole load of 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 concerns around anesthetic and stuff and we got through that I was just about to go back to work and COVID hit and there I was like midway through my pregnancy and I was like what is happening you know that kind of question we've all asked ourselves so much over the last two years you know what is happening and so very quickly things shut down from a maternity care perspective so my husband couldn't come to the anomaly scan they wouldn't let me video call him uh you know I was on my own for the rest of the pregnancy uh no no like no opportunity at all for him to come to any appointment and we had had a very difficult birth experience with our first daughter so we were much more anxious much more nervous um and we knew what we were missing as well this time around because he had been so involved the first time and then what happened I was due in July 2020 and before probably in around May uh, the country was opening up again and you know we were all this big reopening plan we're all this living with Covid plan it was the original one I know we've been through like a few iterations of it now Mm. and the Dublin maternity hospitals were all changing their rules and partners were being slowly but surely welcomed back into hospitals to accompany people for greater durations during labour and uh, on the wards. Uh, but nothing was happening in Cork, even though it's the most, it's the most, it's the newest ho- maternity hospital in the state. 
and <clears throat> I was like trying to contact the hospital no response nobody would reply to emails nobody would respond on social media nobody like you know reception would just put you off and I remember going into my 36 week appointment and like you go through the gamut of it because like for so long I had just kind of made myself understand that I would be totally on my own and then suddenly the hope came back in because everything was opening up and they were talking about pubs and gang games and all of that and the doctor just looked at me at the start of my because the first question I asked was you know what's the story like and she just looked at me and she went you should have no expectation that your husband will be allowed to visit you in the hospital and it just it's devastating it's it's it's, it it's moments in time that you're never getting back it's particular like it's just very cruel and it's very barbaric and I think you know fast forward a few months like you know we got through it in a sense like you know as in we just had to um and then a few months later somebody set up a petition uh somebody I didn't know and I saw it and it was like somebody had thrown me a lifeline because I didn't want anybody to go through what we had gone through mm. and in particular like it was our second child so mm. in one sense it was worse because we knew what we were missing but it, in another way then I just couldn't imagine having we'd say the experience I had with my first daughter somebody mm. having that experience under COVID in terms yeah. of a really difficult induction really difficult birth and having to do that on your own and I mean I was heartbroken and yeah. so many of my friends you know like we're talking about that age you know like so many of my friends are of that age lots of people are deciding to have children and every mm. time somebody would tell me they were pregnant my heart would just break for them because I knew yeah. what they were facing many people having babies over covid you know and, and I, I think there's so much yeah like uh, 60,000 live births in Ireland every year and that yeah. doesn't count for anybody who goes through pregnancy loss or anybody who has a stillbirth so mm. it's actually a very like it's actually an underestimation of the amount of women and their partners who use maternity services in Ireland yeah so we decided to get together so there's a kind of there's six of us and we started uh with Caroline's petition then we handed in that petition and it just kind of snowballed from there mm. and we were just making some progress on it last November and the HSE yeah. came back around and said oh we let partners back in for the 20-week scan which is called the anomaly scan or the big scan and that yeah. was movement and hospitals didn't implement it and then we were straight into the third surge and we had to kind of mm. pause to just allow the health service to deal with that surge because it was very, yeah. very difficult. And then mm. we were out of that again. And suddenly we were back to talking about pubs opening. We were back to talking about gag games and there was nobody talking about maternity hospitals. And I thought I was going crazy. Yeah, it's ludicrous. It, it is. It, I mean, it's so frustrating if that women, once again, uh, are left out of the equation when it comes to, you know, their rights, um, you know, what they're entitled to. And I suppose from that, the, the push for, for the better maternity care campaign, really, you, you, you all really thought then, you know, this, this is something that we really have to push out here, you know, because from what I can gather, it, there wasn't much support from that point onwards, because People were campaigning for the GAA games and they were campaigning for this and that and the nightclubs to be open. But again, the, the people that were creating life and creating Irish citizens weren't even in the equation. So how did that feel? Like, how did that, you know, how does that affect somebody, especially if you're 
within that uh, group, within that community where you are pregnant or you have just gone through pregnancy and you've gone through, you know, the ordeal of not having your partner uh, present and then missing out on valuable moments that you're never going to get back. I mean, how did that feel? I think there's two overwhelming feelings, uh, well, three maybe, that I would say over the course of this experience. The first, I think, is just feeling so dehumanised by the hospital who wouldn't even deign to give you a response. You know, like the hospitals just shut down, they, they wouldn't, and they still, to a certain extent, are in this space. You know, they won't reply to people, they won't answer, like, normal, legitimate queries. This isn't, you know, anyone going on a hunt for anybody on social media, but, like, asking just serious, legitimate questions about their risk um, assessments, about their balance of risk and benefit in this scenario. No answer at all. And I, it just makes you feel utterly dehumanised. And then there is an anger that is just so deep inside my soul at how women have been treated right throughout this pandemic. So like the, the maternity services are a symptom of a bigger problem um, and a really visceral one. And it's such a transformative time in your life. And Margaret was talking about that transition earlier. Like it is probably one of the biggest transformations you will ever experience as an adult. And that it was like, it wasn't even important enough for them to think about it. It's not that there was any sort of malice. It's not that they kind of went out of their way to make it difficult or anything like that. It just, it wasn't even on their radar. Like they just didn't even think about it, which is actually almost worse because you're so unimportant as a woman in this country that you don't even make it onto the agenda. And that makes me really, really angry. And uh, like, you know, as I often say to my husband, I'm like, there are fires like burning in me for what I have experienced during COVID that will. And it's not even just that. It's also about the fact that they shut down childcare. They shut down everything. They expected everybody to work from home, to care for children, to do all of And all of that fell predominantly on women. Like, you know what I mean? Like we were very lucky that we have a good balance and we were able to get things set up. Mm. But, you know, for lots and lots of women, COVID has been detrimental to their life. Huge. Um, and, and I mean, just this assaults have gone up, you know, domestic violence has gone up. I mean, there's a lot. It, like it's domestic violence. It's the fact that women are in precarious work. More women are in the health service. They're more at risk of long COVID. Jobs that were lost in, you know, were predominantly female sector. And, and so there's all of that. So like, I think, and like what the sense I get from my friends is that women are angry and women are getting political in a way that they haven't before. And then the other feeling that I would say that these restrictions in particular, like it is a loneliness that cannot be put into words and it took like I mean I spent three days in the hospital on my own my husband came in for the operation he was sent out afterwards I didn't see him again until I was discharged and somebody carried the baby for me downstairs and out to him it took 15 months for me to actually be able to describe what that weekend was like Mm. and it's not that anybody did anything to me it's not that anything particularly bad happened but it is Mm depths of loneliness at such a vulnerable point in time and that is something that you know you don't you don't get over that you carry that Mm. like you can go to therapy you can go to counseling which I have done after my first birth of, of my first daughter because it was so difficult 
but you like that is your experience and you always have it and hold it and I've gotten so many messages from women in better maternity care who are delaying having more children because of the restrictions who had such a bad experience they will never have any more children mm. and that's that's not a way like we are a resource rich country yeah. And there is absolutely no reason in the world why we should have this scenario for women in, in our maternity services. Uh, but yet it is utterly controlled by men, you know, in all of the senior management teams, in all of the senior decision making positions and the cabinet subcommittee on COVID is exclusively male. Yeah. And even though attention has been brought to that, like they're still ploughing on with their rugby matches in the Aviva, despite the fact that the schools are hotbeds of COVID, no filters in schools, no filters in indoor places, no listening to the experience of women who are at the coalface of this pandemic in a way that other people aren't. And that is just something that is unforgivable at this stage of the pandemic. And in terms of the compliance, Linda, and, and the situation with regards to hospitals now and, you know, the national guidelines, where is it now? So, so you know, for anyone listening in that's, you know, either discussing having a baby, thinking about having a baby, you know, where, where do things lie now? Because I know you have had significant breakthroughs um, in the last few weeks. Like, what, what's the situation now? So we're at the end of November now, and it's been a month since the guidelines were issued and actually new guidelines came into place today. Um, and so the situation is that in the main, in most hospitals, what will happen is for all of your antenatal care, you are on your own. So partner access is still completely restricted for most of your antenatal care, except for two scans, the 12 week scan and the 20 week scan and your partner can attend for those and um, then when you come to labor labor by and large is unrestricted access except for in two hospitals which is Letterkenny and Waterford now I say that as a general kind of statement there are there are details to that so like if you it depends on what time of day you go into labor when you go into the hospital most hospitals now have access for partners between 8 a.m and 9 p.m and then if you go in in the middle of the night if you go straight to a delivery room you have your partner with you but if you go to a multi-bed ward your partner will typically be asked to go home and um, which was the case before covid but there was mm. there was a lot more flexibility in the system before covid that isn't there now Mm. Um, and then like for postpartum checks, like so your two week check, your six week check, like it's a very hit and miss if people are actually getting those. Um, and it's a very difficult as well. So I've heard stories of people being readmitted into the maternity hospitals for whatever reason, maybe they're bleeding heavily, uh, stitches need checked or whatever, and their newborn baby is being separated from them and being told mm. that you can't stay outside. Um, and there's some ongoing issues with NICU. So we meet with the HSC regularly um, mm. and we're engaged with them. So our next meeting with them is the 8th of December. We have asked them to look at the antenatal care aspect of it because it is a massive part of your pregnancy journey. But I think given the numbers at the moment, I think it would be foolish to expect that that's going to improve, you know, um, because they're the, one of the unsafest aspects of maternity care in the country and were pre-COVID as well. And so like lots of things, COVID has only exposed what were extremely faulty systems mm -hmm. to begin with. 
Oh my God. I mean, it's awful. I'm, I'm, I'm Margaret, from your perspective as a therapist, I mean, this is a serious traumatic uh, period in, in Irish history for women yet again. Um, and as Linda so eloquently described the, the, the nuances and the, you know, the, the effects, the detrimental effects um, that this system, you know, that's currently in place has on women and their partners. Um, what advice or what kind of, what would you suggest in coping mechanisms um, during times like this or, you know, um, how to how to overcome the anxiety that it, that it brings? It's difficult. You know, I'm here. I'm, I'm nodding my head frantically uh, with, with everything that, that Linda said. And, and it is, um, you know, it, it, the, the word traumatic absolutely comes to mind because it's at a time when you're feeling you're most vulnerable. Um, you're dependent on other people to, um, you know, make decisions and be there and, and you're impacted by external factors in, in such a, a deeply personal way. I suppose it, it's trying to rally as much support um, as you can for yourself um, and, and trying to resource yourself as much as possible. But it's very, very challenging. And the difficulty is, you know, that once you have a, a new baby, obviously it's hard to find time for yourself, but it's so, so important, possibly again, just anyway, but if there has been any kind of difficulty, um, you know, in, in the in the labor, the pregnancy process, you know, okay, I know I'm, I'm like a broken record, I suppose you'd hope that therapy would help because again, because it's such a personal thing, um, mm -hmm. it could be peer support, you know, linking with other women, because the, the word that stood out for me is isolation and, you know, I'm hearing that, you know, it, it's obviously very intense in that situation, but I think women feel very isolated around the whole topic anyway. Um, again, just I know it was a small bit of research that I did, but women, you know, I, I, I spoke to 15 women and who hadn't had children yet and some wanted to and some didn't. They all felt isolated in the process. Nobody felt actually supported, either the women that intended to, to have children at some point or the women that didn't. So... Mm system is not working for anybody you know and it's nothing to do with parents versus non-parents or any of that this just isn't working at all and to have people feel so isolated and so vulnerable is is traumatic and and really really needs to be addressed from a systemic point of view um it's not new unfortunately but you know it's, it's just so obvious now um it's it's really it's really distressing to to think about to be honest I think what Margaret's saying there is so true about connecting with each other because it's one of the things that I've been so proud of for the Better Maternity campaign, care campaign is that like obviously we achieved our outcome, you know what I mean, in yeah. lots of ways, like there, there's still things to be fought for, but you know our main goal was to get partners back in and by and large we have been able to do that. But that has almost become incidental to the community of women that we have created. And what I have found really powerful is that when you think about maybe why people haven't mobilized on maternity care before, kind of people, I think, broadly fell into two categories. One is that if you if you had a, an OK enough a journey like pregnancy journey and birth then you were busy with a small baby and you kind of you know you didn't really maybe see the need for a massive change because everything had gone okay or by the book um, and then if you didn't and if you had a traumatic experience it's extremely difficult to put yourself in a space to campaign for change about something that caused you great harm and something that caused you trauma 
And I think one of the things about our campaign is it has brought people together who have experienced both sides of that and where people have been able to say, well, whether my experience was good or whether my experience was extremely negative, actually, this system isn't working for anybody and we're going to improve it for everybody so that if there's another pandemic or just if we're like getting back to normal maternity services, what was acceptable before COVID is no longer acceptable to us as the standard of maternity care in this country. And that is from women coming together and talking to each other and breaking down that sort of isolation of like, uh, you know, like Margaret has said so much out there at the start of the podcast, but like all the expectations that are in motherhood in particular. I love yeah. the word parenthood because I think it's so much more egalitarian because we're obsessed with motherhood in Ireland. And yeah. so like just by osmosis, you you take in all of this sort of cultural norm about motherhood and what you're meant to feel about being a mother and what you're meant to, all of those things, none of which I felt and which make you feel so much worse when then you find yourself in that transition period of new parenthood going, what the absolute F is going on? Um, and I think the fact that women are talking to each other now and collaborating on this and connecting on this and campaigning on this, it is the only antidote to the isolation. It's the only one. And I think mm. the more that we keep doing it, like talking on podcasts like this, mobilizing on social media, whether it's a march or whether it's an Instagram live, they all have power. And it's about yeah. not actually staying in that silence anymore. And I think that's hugely powerful. It is. I mean, it's it's that sense of camaraderie and that sense of solidarity. And something that I did see and notice in the um, in your campaign was men, you know, men were present. They showed up. And I think with, with anything where there is huge issues concerning women, um, societal issues, political issues, socioeconomical issues, it's important that, you know, the men turn up and, and because what affects women affects men, what affects men affects women. And it's that kind of, you know, the notion where in Ireland it's all about, you know, well, if, if you have a child, you know, as a, as a woman, that's it. Like that's your, your, but if a man has a child, his life continues as it was. And that notion still exists to this day. And I, I'm just absolutely flabbergasted at that sometimes because it's two people to make a baby. <laughs> and, you know, it's it should be the sense of, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a joint effort. It's a joint uh, parenting uh, module. Everything that you go into should be done together. And with that in mind, like I, I was reading up about maternity and um, paternity leave. And in America, they don't have any paid leave for the fathers. Nothing. It doesn't exist. There's no federal offering of any paid leave at all when it comes to the fathers. And I think, you know, in Ireland, Jesus, we're behind in Ireland. But I was shocked to see that in the United States. I mean, what, what, what where does that lie in Ireland? Well, actually, interestingly, we don't have paid maternity leave in Ireland. Actually, what we have is we have a social welfare payment that's available to people. Yeah. And that's a, a, a certain amount. But actually, less than 50 percent of women actually get that topped up. And that's a statistic that people don't hear very often because we talk about paid maternity leave. But it's, you know, it's a state payment, not your employer paying it. And actually, you know, less than 50 percent of employers 
pay the top up. So there's huge financial barriers to being able to access leave in Ireland as well, even mm. though it's not as severe as the state. Um, yeah. But improvements are being made. So in Ireland, what you have is you have a period of maternity leave whereby you get this social welfare payment and depending on your employer, you may get your top up to the rest of your salary. Yeah. Then you have an option of 16 weeks unpaid leave that you can mm. take your holidays and things like that entitlements roll over and um, then there is a thing a new leave and this is where it gets confusing for people because they're called there's parents leave and there's parental leave and those two things are different and these are available to both parents so your parents leave is a period of now five weeks depending on like it's going back to children being born first november either 2019 or 2020 I can't think off the top of my head mm. and you get five weeks but again it's a social welfare payment so it's not necessarily your full pay it's a social mm. welfare payment of I think it's 230-240 a week and that's right. available to both parents and then you have parental leave which is for a five-week period it, sorry for the five-week period then isn't it yeah so for the five-week period of the parents leave you can get a social welfare payment and um, men who are parents get two weeks paternity leave on top of that with right. the same social welfare payment and then that's everything that's paid and after that then both parents have access to 90 days parental leave up until a child is in mid-teenage years which yeah. is the transposition of European law and um, so it's the parents leave one is the newer one um, and it like, you know, the government, the program for government is set to increase that and increase it. But we already know the fact that it's only a social welfare payment and it's not somebody's full salary is a barrier to people because mm. you're talking about a, a, a huge income drop if parents are availing of that. So if you have a two parent household, if you're renting anywhere in the country I don't even have to say Dublin if you're renting anywhere in the country and you have two salaries and then one of you is going on maternity leave and you're not getting a top up you one of your salaries is already down to a social welfare payment and um, you're losing a huge proportion of your salary salary and then for a second parent to take paternity leave or parents leave may mean that both people both parents are down to a social welfare payment which the choice is then I'm not going to be able to pay my rent or I'm not going to be able to save for childcare, and yeah. it's financially not an not an option for lots and lots of people so we need to have a very serious conversation mm. about resourcing that because all of the evidence all of the international literature shows that you know the first year of a child's life is hugely important in terms of developmental uh, milestones and gains and all of that and we should be doing everything possible to ensure mm -hmm. that parents are able to take time out of work and to go yeah. in that really transformative stage and like that's a societal good like people go nuts at me when I say that you know mm -hmm. like as if I'm advocating for people to go on a holiday for a year yeah. absolutely not a holiday to parents small kids or babies but like the whole issue of public child care publicly available child care like we have to tackle it and we have to get it right because we will make infinite savings in terms of education outcomes in terms of crime all of those indicators mm. of a healthy society yeah. all start with how much we invest 
mm. in that really pivotal stage of childhood and early childhood and like can can we not have that conversation and it's so important linda because you know um the citizensinformation.ie by the way for listeners there's a lot of information that's available there but a lot of people are afraid to ask these questions you know and you see you know, we, we spoke about planned parenthood and then obviously there's a lot of the times when, you know, babies just surprise you <laughs> and you find yourself in a situation where, OK, I'm going to become a, a parent, um, whether it's solo or whether it's with your partner. And, you know, fina- finances are a huge, huge factor into this, which can also lead some people to make the decision to not include the father on the birth search. And, you know, by doing so, they will be open to various kinds of government financial assistance, um, rent assistance schemes. And by doing so, they're actually renouncing the rights of the father. So, for instance, if a child is sick, they can't go into the hospital with them. I mean, what's your views here? How do we tackle this, um, you know, big issue within Irish society? Because we do see it happening an awful lot. And at the end of the day, it is taxpayers' money as well that's being given to certain families. Um, what's your views on this, Linda? I think there, there, it's not something that better maternity care is actively looking at, mm. um, but I think there are other groups um, who yeah. are looking at things like the definition of family, um, mm. because there, there's a number of different tenants to it. Like there is obviously the financial aspect of it. Yeah. But also, you know, there was changes in laws as well recently around birth search registrations. Mm. But, you know, there, I was really struck by listening to uh, Cloda O'Hagan, she did a, a podcast on our birthing nation podcast and she talked about how difficult it was for her as a solo parent to find a family so i think there's so much that we need to do around this whole area and i think it starts mm. with talking about what do we value yeah and if we value you know women and we center women and if we value that kind of early childhood time and if we value that people have families that don't look like a man and a woman and three or four kids anymore mm. like if we can value that and place that as the starting position well then like that's mm. a good starting point and then let's draw out the public services from that um, mm. because i think that's the other thing is we have to look at you know why like everything you said there, Linda, about, you know, decisions people make about birth certs and all that. So much of that is around financial necessity. Yeah, totally. So much of it is. And so actually, if we make things financially viable for people, for mm. most vulnerable people in our society, as well as for everybody, no matter what socioeconomic status you're in, then we solve a lot of those problems that are derived from it. Mm. But, you know, this idea that we just address symptoms rather than actually address the cause is so problematic. You know, we're not addressing the fact that women, by and large, are in precarious work in Ireland, that Mm. they're in low-paid jobs. Uh, Mm. You know, a lot of women in Ireland are in low-paid jobs. And so then if they're deciding that they want to have a child or they're in a family situation, that's a financial difficulty then, you know, or a burden that it places on them. So what, Mm. you know, everything is in interconnected and like what we find is that for women it's all of these different intersections and it's almost like death by a thousand cuts you Mm. know like because you just about get over the hump in one aspect maybe you decide you want to solo parent and you know you get through all of those things 
And then suddenly your precarious job decides, well, actually, no, I don't want you here now because you're pregnant or I'm not going to ask you back or your hours are going to take a shift. And suddenly all of the plans that you made that were based on your previously stable job are out the window. Mm. And, you know, so it's it's really difficult. And I think one of the things we have to do after COVID is we just have to we have to show and we have to show people that there is a better way to organize society for women. Yeah. Totally. I mean, in, in a, one of the podcasts that will be out this month as well, I, I speak to some of the people that were behind Repeal the Eighth as well, because, you know, not all pregnancies result in, you know, uh, following through on it. You know, there's options there. Yeah. And it's I think it's very important as to, to just look at how that has been treated as well in Ireland and how, you know, women have were told they could be afforded this and this was an option but it still hasn't been put properly and adequately into place to safeguard women's physical health mental health care and, and their well-being so there's a lot of factors that that go into the that to go into the entire um facet of uh, parenthood and and planned or unplanned parenthood i mean it's something that we could just endlessly talk about oh my god but in regards to um both your experiences and both your uh, immense um, knowledge, and I'm so grateful for everything that that um, that you do and that you've done. Um, what we something that we ask a lot of our guests is: is there a book, or is there a piece of literature, or if is there something that you've recently listened to, be it a podcast or what, whatever, that inspires you, or that has changed your life and somehow uh, inspired you to do the work that you do. And it, and it by a woman because we're so surrounded by literature by men um, it's just women inspiring women and is there something that has inspired you by a woman well I actually only tend to read women anymore uh, it's actually very rare that there will be a book on my shelf by a man that I've bought and yeah. they tend to be gifts um, but for me it's probably when I when I got when you sent me that question um, I it was Vicky Phelan like oh. I found her book incredible and um, like I think she's an incredible woman but I also think like her legacy is just still so untold because yeah. she just so very clearly stood up and said I will not accept this like and you know she didn't she didn't bang the table she didn't do anything she just stood up very simply and said I will not accept this for myself or for anybody else and I think that has absolutely helped me. I would have felt very voiceless and powerless after I had my first daughter. And she definitely helped me find my voice again and to be able to step into this campaign. And her book, if anybody hasn't read it, is just, I, I just loved it. I just found, you know, she, she is just like us. She's just like everybody. And it's just about having that boundary of saying, no, that's not good enough. And I won't accept it. And I think if women were able to do that in every aspect of their life, mm. we would be in a very different space. But it's not something we're taught is the nice thing to do. Yeah, I love that you mentioned Vicky because Vicky inspired a lot of the campaign and activism work that, that I have done and that my colleagues have done in, in Why Not Horror. And we actually got um, the Irish Examiner and International Women's Day this year, did the 100 Women Changing Ireland. And I was so honoured to be featured in it as well, but I was more or less beside Vicky and I was like, oh my God. And I got I got it blown up for her. She was in America at the time, but I got in touch with her, with her and then got the family address. And because she's so like, she's just so, again, it's just this solidarity and this, 
you know, camaraderie that is just so important amongst women, especially over COVID where we've been more or less voiceless. Um, and I just thought she was such a wonderful person. And, you know, we got the it all blown up and, and you know, so she can put it in a frame and stuff. And, you know, she's just such an incredible, incredible human being. So I'm so glad that you brought her up because she was that for so many of us um, within this collective. And, you know, it's to, to know that she's inspired so many other people and so many other collectives and movements is really, it really speaks very, very loud, you know. And what about yourself, Margaret? So for me, um, I am um, choosing Emily Pine's book, No to Self. Um, equally, if anyone hasn't read it, please do. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, and she speaks, so she speaks about lots of different um, areas, but she does have um, a, a section called The, the Baby Years um, and um, just speaks again so openly and honestly about um, you know, lots of different positions and experiences um, on the topic, but there's just one one line from it that I, I love and I think applies to lots of things um, that I am done marking myself through absence. I am done using the word failure about my body. I am done living and writing that story. Um, and I think it's so easy, I suppose, to maybe get stuck in the negative and all the negative is, is valid. Um, but to, you know, to, to try and see to, you know to, to take the focus off some of the what what whether it's absence where other people are telling us it's absent from our lives or whether yeah. it feels absent to ourselves as well so I just I really really love her writing and her book it's a beautiful book it's such a great choice Margaret I think there's just there's so much richness to it story yeah I'm going to throw another one in as uh Margaret mentioned uh Emily Pine notes herself but one that I loved as well was during your grief as a ghost in the throat I just think it's a really remarkable, it's so hard to describe the book, but mm. I think particularly if you are in that transition into new parenthood, there's so much of it that will resonate, but it's just so beautifully written and there are so many different themes and intersections in her writing and the cadence of it. It's magical and beautiful and it will never leave my bookshelf because I just want to be able to leaf through it all of the time. Yeah, fantastic. I was actually speaking with um, Clodagh Finn, who's another amazing um, author from Ireland, and she has a book, Through Her Eyes, which celebrates uh, women throughout Irish history. And it's something that I think a lot of us really need to, to look at because, again, you know, there hasn't really been many. Constant Markievicz is probably the only one that some of us may have been <laughs> lucky enough to hear in whispers. <laughs> um, but yeah, there, there's certainly an absence of the women's narrative and the women's story and, you know, life through the eyes of a woman. Because as you said uh, yourself, Linda, there earlier on, a lot of it is, is, is told and viewed upon as from a man's perspective, you know. They're, they're fantastic, fantastic um, books there to, to recommend. So thank you very much. Look, I talk to you all day, but I know we're all powerhouse women and we all have to get back to our jobs. <laughs> but um, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk to us today at the Why Not Horror podcast and um, continued success in your careers. And thanks so much for, you know, giving advice and telling your story about, um, you know, parenting and your experience as well um linda as well especially as your experience and margaret your expertise in the area thank you so much thanks for having us linda thanks very much